You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Hi, I'm John Collins, Managing Editor at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the world of product management, design, startups, marketing, and more. This week's guest is Lara Hogan, Director of Engineering at Etsy, who is in conversation with Jeffrey Keating from Intercom. In her own words, Lara champions performance as part of the overall user experience, helps people get comfortable giving presentations, and believes it's important to celebrate career achievements with donuts. She's written a number of books on these topics, including the just-published Demystifying Public Speaking, which is packed with practical advice whether you're prepping to speak at a major conference or just delivering a presentation at a team meeting. Jeffrey and Lara's conversation covered the challenges of being a new manager and relating deeply to your reports. When I first started being a manager, I think I was like a robot. You know, like I didn't really understand that people were different from me even, you know, rather than even just different from each other. And it took me a long time to realize that whether it's in one-on-ones or whether it's uh, giving people feedback or, you know, just having a lunchtime conversation, you really need to be in tune to the person that you're talking to and, and understand what's motivating them, what's driving them. How improving a public speaking is contingent on being able to receive honest feedback. Humans are really bad at giving each other feedback. <laughs> and humans are also really bad at receiving feedback. So yeah, I, tr- I try to spend a lot of time talking about feedback in the book because I think it's something that we can all get better at and we can all really utilize in our daily work life. And why the technology industry has a major hurdle to tackle when it comes to diversity. Without diverse representation of different voices, of different experiences, of different backgrounds, we're not going to advance very far as an industry. So I think we've got a huge risk if we don't make it safer, if we don't create more inclusive events, if we don't make a point of having diverse voices on stage. It's a fascinating conversation. So without any further delay, I'll hand over to Lara and Jeffrey. Lara, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So you're currently Engineering Director at Etsy, but I believe you came to that role after a long, long career in user experience. So yeah. could, you, could you talk us through your career so far, and in particular your own journey from UX engineering? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in undergrad, I didn't study computer science at all. Actually, I was a philosophy <laughs> major, which... I'm thankful that my parents let me go and do that, considering there probably were not a lot of job prospects for philosophy students at the time. Still are, um, still aren't. But I, you know, I did a lot of website design and front-end website development, so user experience stuff for friends, for my own personal. I, I was running a, a wedding photography company at the time also, so I was doing a lot of work for that on the web. And yeah, I just, I just kind of got started doing front-end development that way through like little side projects. And I found that user experience stuff, you know, it runs the gamut. At that time, CSS was a brand new thing, and there was a lot to do with best practices and a lot of different ways you could be developing for the web. And so from there, eventually, I moved towards more of like an engineering focus uh, in my work, you know, working full-time in tech. And yeah, eventually just found my way to, to Etsy. And I, yeah, managing has been the best. Managing developers has been really rad. I suppose the question kind of at the moment of should designers code uh, is probably a particularly, <laughs> particularly interesting one for you, is it? Yeah, I mean, there are so many skill sets, right? Not just designing, not just developing, but thinking about our users or um, thinking about how to make things accessible for our users. I mean, there's so many different things wrapped up in UX work and in, in development work these days. And there's so many skill sets that people, I think, 
should at least try to learn something about, even if it's not uh, developing a full second skill set. So um, you've been central in popularizing the idea that, you know, web performance is the experience. So I suppose that's, the, you know, the idea that, you know, page speed and load times can have a huge impact on, on how people actually trust your brand. So I suppose as, yeah. an, enge- as an engineer, how do you convince designers to, to actually make these trade-offs for the sake of performance? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, you know, when I first started talking about web performance, I was talking to a lot of developers about it. And I started to realize I was missing influencing people who had a huge effect on how long a website takes to load, the design team, right? And I wanted to help designers start to understand the impact that their design choices were having on what would end up being, you know, the total page time. So my work shifted really to to trying to figure out how to translate all of what makes up the user experience, not just the aesthetics, but also the speed too. So in my work, I did a lot of trying to uh, translate, say, how the internet works or or how a a request makes it back to a user's browser to help, you know, designers understand the impact of adding more images or more fonts or how heavy those kinds of things are. I ended up realizing that by helping designers understand that performance is a huge part about how people experience a website, I was able to help start them thinking about weighing aesthetics as much as they do speed. And so um, talk me through Etsy's um, device lab that you had a hand in creating. So I think it was around 2013 when I first read about it on on Codas Craft. But I'm sort of, I'm curious about, um, you know, how that lab has actually evolved. So obviously 2013 was, you know, pre-Apple Watch. Um, right. <laughs> so quite a long time ago now. But I mean, so what sort of challenges do um, designers and engineers face? As, I suppose just the number of interfaces keeps growing every day. Yeah, it's funny. Doesn't 2013 feel like such a long time ago now? <laughs> like just in terms of how much devices have advanced. Um, so back in the day, I was working as the mobile web engineering manager at Etsy, meaning I worked with a group of developers whose job it was to help all of the product engineers be optimizing their new features or their new changes to the website so that they worked on smaller screens. So our job was, wasn't so much to actually make the mobile website exist or pretty or anything. It was to help empower the people who were shipping to the web, to our, our production code base, you know, understand the impact of their changes or understand the nuances between <laughs> clicking and tapping. So around that same time, the mobile engineering director asked me if I could start working on a, the device lab for Etsy. And <laughs> the state that it was when I first found it was a little locked box. It's like a gray cabinet, a locked cabinet full of devices. I don't know where they came from or how old they were. They definitely weren't even charged. I mean, you know, no one was going to use this yeah. uh, set of devices in this you know, locked gray cabinet. So um, I partnered with Destiny Montague, who at the time was an engineer on the corporate IT team, uh, in trying to create a new experience, again, talking about user experience, for checking out devices and using them as part of engineers' daily workflows. So we worked with a facilities team who does a lot of like office improvements at Etsy to build the first version was just a bookshelf effectively um, with different size shelves. We could fit different size devices, whether it was tablets or super little tiny. Um, we had like a Firefox phone at the time and a couple of like really old, you know, not touchscreen phones and try to, you know, we, we went through everything from like thinking through the power setup. So how, how are we getting power to the lab? How are we being efficient about energy usage? through um, what is it like to, when you walk up to this device lab, what's it like to pick up a device? What's it like to return a device? How can we make it easy for people to see at a glance the kinds of devices that they might want to test their work on? Or how how easy is, is it to plug a device back in when you're done with it? I can promise you that that was probably our <laughs> destinies and my biggest source of headaches was people you know returning stuff to the device lab incorrectly. So a lot of the work had to do with making the 
user experience of the device lab improved, which saved us headaches, but also made it a lot easier for people to test. Sure. And over time, you know, we did a lot of uh, improvements to do with how much uh, people were able to check in and, and check out devices. We can log which devices were most popular or adding new devices to the lab as different size screens and different operating system versions and, and different kinds of devices became more popular. At one time, we even had like a Google Glass. <laughs> you know, we partnered with, um, with Microsoft and with Mozilla to make sure that we were covering their phones as well. So I think over time, you know, it's evolved a lot. And a couple of years ago, we handed it off to another teammate of ours to, to take with and run with it. And he's done some amazing things with it as well. That's really interesting. You talk about the sort of like locked cabinet versus sort of <laughs> what you created, which is a kind of like large sort of visual tool that's kind of just, you know, everyone can can see it. And I think these sort of things can really help um, from like an organizational point of view to really make sort of like mobile performance a, a real priority for the company. Yeah, it's I mean, you can imagine how easy it is to ignore that subset of users. It's a lot. It's really easy for us to develop on our laptops or desktops and totally forget that there's a very different user experience when you're holding a screen. So our hope was to make it just as easy as humanly possible to test this stuff. As we discussed, you could, you kind of come from a, I suppose, a non-technical background. So how would you say that's kind of helped you in your career so far? And I suppose, what <laughs> advice would you give to, to others in a similar position trying to break into engineering? Yeah, oh, I love this kind of question. I think that my my philosophy degree, you know, it, when you're when you're writing all these papers, you have to get really good at developing your thesis statement, developing supporting arguments, making your case really clear, you know, explaining it succinctly, all of these things in writing that I think really translate into most people's jobs. We all have to communicate with other humans all the time. And I don't just mean like in writing papers, writing blog posts, you know, just in emails, I think it's helped me be more clear, be more concise, make my point come across more succinctly. So for me, coming from a non-technical background, all this stuff that you learn you know, in the humanities education really is helpful in being a good teammate, being a good manager, you know, being a, being a person who understands that there's more to just work than the code that you're shipping. And so um, as you've taken on more and more, I suppose, managerial responsibilities, you've written some really, really good pieces on, I suppose, kind of getting the most from your team, giving meaningful one-to-ones. How important have you found in sort of deliberately designing these sort of feedback loops for your team? Oh, my goodness. So humans, <laughs> humans are fascinating, right? We are all so different and we're all... We've all got different fears. We've all got different strengths. We all need different things. And so for me, when I first started being a manager, I think I was uh, like a robot, you know, like I didn't really understand that people were different from me even, you know, rather than even just different from each other. And it took me a long time to realize that whether it's in one-on-ones or whether it's uh, giving people feedback or, you know, just having a lunchtime conversation, you really need to to be in tune to the person that you're talking to and and understand what's motivating them, what's driving them, what is it that they're trying to fix right now, what is it that they need help with. And so for me as a manager, it's it's a lot to do with like knowing myself well enough, but also knowing the person who I'm speaking to and making sure I, I get, you know, what their deal is. And I think one of my favorite parts of when you've discussed one-to-ones is, you know, I suppose understanding what your employees, I suppose, like what makes them grumpy as well, which I thought was yeah. sort of fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, I straight up stole that um, from a manager of mine who asked me that in our first one-on-one. He he said, all right, Lara, I'm just going to ask you some cheesy questions. What makes you grumpy? And I was so caught off guard. It was like, you know, have you, I mean, I've never thought about that. Have you ever thought about what makes you grumpy and like just telling someone? I definitely haven't. And so for me, it was like, all right, grumpy is a cool word. It's like not what makes me angry or what makes me upset or whatever. It's like, well, not being caffeinated, that makes me pretty, or being hangry. That makes me pretty grumpy. Um, Me too. And then his follow-up to that was, how will I know when you're grumpy? 
which is a perfect manager question because our work isn't just about like reducing people's grumpiness, but it's more like, cool, how do I spidey sense when something's going awry? And so, yeah, the one-on-one questions evolved from there. It was, I started to realize that people had different preferences in terms of the kind of recognition that they received. Some people really love public recognition. I personally love public recognition. Some people really prefer private recognition, one-on-one, uh, a thoughtful note, sometimes, you know, their favorite baked good, which is another question that I like to ask. Uh, and so getting to know this stuff, getting to know the ways that they prefer to receive feedback, the medium or the routine, what their goals are, what they need from their manager or from their teammates, all that stuff, it, it helps me at least get a better picture of, you know, in what ways I can support them as their manager. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript, It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So I'm here with Lara Hogan, Director of Engineering at Etsy. So speaking of feedback, your new book, um, Demystifying Public Speaking, is all about sort of, uh, I suppose, getting comfortable with giving presentations and conference talks. And a big way people can do this is actually getting feedback on a talk in advance of giving it. So could you talk us through that some more? Yeah, I love talking about this because... Humans are really bad at giving each other feedback. (laughs) And humans are also really bad at receiving feedback. So I I don't know about you, but for me, whenever, you know, my boss or or my partner says, hey, you do this thing that really bothers me, (laughs) it's really hard to hear. So yeah, I I try to spend a lot of time talking about feedback in the book because I think it's something that we can all get better at and we can all really utilize in our daily work life. So when it comes to giving you know, if you give a dry run to a group of people and get feedback on it ahead of time, that'll help you learn what you can do better, what you can, you can do differently. And that applies to, you know, the words that you're saying as much as it applies to how you're standing, how you're holding your hands, what you're doing with your hands, how fast you're talking. You know, it, it can be it can really run the gamut. So my number one piece of advice is to think about what kinds of feedback you're going to be looking for from someone who's, who's helping you get better at a thing, whether it's public speaking or not. Uh, you know, you, you can tee them up beforehand and say, hey, I would love some really actionable or specific feedback on my narrative structure and whether any of these bits get boring. And that way that person can can watch you give this, you know, this dry run of your talk and keep that in mind throughout. And at the end say, yeah, 
here's some thoughts I had, or here's some feelings I had, or here's some things I, I think you can try and do differently. And that way your, your brain is prepped for that specific kind of feedback. You're going to be op- more open to hearing it and it'll probably land better. So I guess to maybe reverse that question then, how should people, or what's the best way for people to receive feedback? Yeah, this is like super different based on the person. One of my coworkers prefers to record a dry run on his computer and send the audio to his coworkers and then ask them to, you know, asynchronously watch it and then reply with feedback in an email. Because for him, that's a lot easier. That's a lot more welcomed than, you know, having to stand in front of a person and, and like brace yourself for the words that they're about to say. It allows him to digest it better. I think that some people would prefer maybe anonymous feedback, so creating a Google form or something else for people to be able to submit their feedback to you. That's a, that's a great way to do it. Or sometimes just like taking someone to coffee. It really depends on the way that you prefer to receive feedback and the way that you think you can you can hear it better. And so in preparation for the book, how has your own experience of public speaking informed it? It's funny. I had a lot of imposter syndrome running up to, to publishing this book just because a lot of this book is based on my own experience and the experiences of the people who I know and who I've read about, you know, as there's so many really fantastic authors out there who have also covered this ground. So I've been a little bit hesitant to put these words out there just because like I, there's no possible way I could know everything that there is to know about public speaking and everything that I'm talking about, you know, I'm hopeful that it's going to be helpful to someone somewhere. And I really try to cover the gamut of the different ways that people can get more comfortable or reduce their fears about public speaking. So a lot of what I cover is based on my own fears, but also the fears of the people who I've spoken with. Um, I put out a survey on Twitter asking people what their number one public speaking fear is. Mine personally is tripping and falling when I'm getting on stage. But I heard just the gamut of responses, everything from my fly being down to um, fumbling my words or blushing or being judged, being wrong, realizing halfway through the talk that I'm a fraud. I mean, just the whole gamut. So all of that information really informed how I wrote this book. I I really try to tackle a myriad of different ways based on who you are as a unique individual that you can start to tackle some of these kinds of fears. And obviously, I mean, you've presented at the likes of sort of Google I.O., New York Times, and even for like the Hillary Clinton campaign. So do you still get nervous before you speak? (laughs) I get a different kind of butterflies, but they're still butterflies. I mean, I get a little less nauseous these days. (laughs) The nerves are different. Um, I think everybody wants to do a good job at whatever kind of work that they're doing. And the stakes are always really high, you know, whether it's a huge audience or just one on one, you want to you want to make sure that you're doing good work. So for me, definitely the nerves still exist. The book title suggests that I guess you'd like to open up tech events and conferences, I suppose, to a much more diverse pool of people. So, I mean, we're in 2016 now. Is there really any excuse for conferences and events um, that don't feature female or diverse speakers? Yeah, this is something that I think in our industry we've been wrestling a lot with over the last two years or so of discourse, whether the discourse has been about Gamergate and and the way that underrepresented groups are, are represented online or attacked online through codes of conduct and the myriad of discussions and, you know, ways to improve uh, safety at events, um, efficacy of codes of conduct, et cetera. I think that we've got a major hurdle here, which is that without diverse representation of different voices, of different experiences, of different backgrounds, we're not going to advance very far as an industry. So I think we've got a huge risk if we don't make it safer, if we don't create more inclusive events, if we don't make a point of having diverse voices on stage. 
So for me, I think that there's a lot that, that events can do to try to improve this. Again, the spectrum ranges from like making it really safe to inviting people to leaning on one, one's network. I think these days it's like really unfortunate that we're still, we're still debating the validity of this stuff. I think it's more than enough time for us to make a difference here. Yeah, I think so much responsibility falls on the shoulders of conference organizers to be really, really deliberate about these things in advance. So I suppose in your experience, um, how can conference organizers really facilitate these diverse voices as well as possible? Yeah, um, a lot has already been written about online. And I think that there's a lot of really good examples of conferences that do this well, that have written about how they either make a safer space or, um, oh, there's a lot of great posts about anonymizing conference talk submissions. So there have been a number of studies done about how anonymizing, whether it's um, resumes or there's a great study about orchestral applications. So people, so violinists coming in and uh, having a curtain up so that the people judging them can't see them. Regardless, anonymizing submission forms, anonymizing CFPs, et cetera, could go a long way in helping us have a more diverse group of people represented. But it's not just a pipeline problem, right? Like there's a lot to do with the safety of the people who are at the event. I personally, and I know many other speakers who have been harassed or attacked or have an otherwise unsafe thing happen to them at an event. And I think that there's there's a lot that we can do, that conference organizers can do to create a safe space, to make it clear to all attendees and speakers that that space needs to be safe, to have clear ways for people to report issues, trained staff so that they can actually handle these issues appropriately. There's a spectrum of ways that event organizers can start to make a more inclusive and safe environment so that we can actually start to hear from this diverse group of voices. So one of my favorite parts of the book is when you talk about how to handle difficult Q&As at the end of a conference talk. What's your advice there? Yeah, we've all either attended or spoken at a conference or an event where someone raises their hand and either the question, it's just a bad question, you know, where it's not actually a question, they're just trying to make a statement or they just, maybe they're just like excited to hear themselves talk, you know, or something. I mean, or it can be more aggressive. I've had attendees or audience members um, say something that might put a speaker on the defense, maybe intentionally or unintentionally. And I think that the best way to help prepare yourself for when this happens is to practice it. From the feedback crew that I've gathered over time to help give me feedback on my presentations before I give them in real life, I'm able to lean on that feedback crew to help me practice answering weird or aggressive questions. I've <laughs> I've gotten really good at saying, huh, I don't actually know the answer to that question, which is fine. It deflates, it deflates the situation. I've also started to get more practice in reframing questions or reframing statements that aren't questions to help give the audience some takeaway, right? So if someone asks something that's totally off the wall or bananas, I can respond in a way that says, hey, I'm going to actually shape your question. I'm going to reframe this a little bit answer this new question that I've created that may or may not be related and hope that the audience still takes away something actionable or inspiring because your job as the speaker, it's to make sure that the audience is learning something. And so, and you're still in control during this Q and a time, even though it may not feel like you are. So you have a lot of power, I think, to reframe questions and handle those really weird or aggressive ones. And remember like the audience is rooting for you. Everybody in that audience knows exactly what's happening when that uh, audience member asks a weird or otherwise aggressive question. I think there's a line which I really loved, which is basically that, you know, it's not your responsibility to to be the expert in answering other people's questions. And I think that sort of mode of thinking sort of kind of unburdens you in a way when you realize that you don't have to provide a sort of canonical answer to every single question that comes up to you. Totally. I have even, um, as a speaker on stage, said, huh, I actually don't know the answer to that question. Does anybody else in the audience know? 
which, you know, it's so honest and it's so, it's still helping everybody learn something. Um, and it's totally fine. Saying, I don't know is absolutely fine. It's in fact, it's better than trying to stand up there and, and stammer something out that may or may not be true. Could a lot of this advice that contained within the book be used for, you know, simple things like, you know, presenting in a meeting or, you know, actually uh, giving interviews, things like that? Like, it's not just directly related to public speaking in a standing up on stage at a conference sort of thing. Yeah, I've started to think a lot about is uh, how all of these skills have helped. You know, we have these all these opportunities in our daily work life to stand up in front of someone or you sit in front of someone and say some prepared words to them. Maybe that's a design critique. Maybe that's um, pitching your your work to a client. Maybe that's asking your boss for promotion and needing to make a case for why you deserve it. There are all these opportunities for us to say some prepared words in a spotlight, whether that spotlight is like literal or figurative. So I'm hopeful that the kinds of skills, the kinds of um, tactics that I list out in the book are helpful to people in many more settings than just a stage. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much for, for joining us, Lara. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. Listener.